Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Business of Sport podcast on The Athletic. Matt Slater with us as usual. With the Africa Cup of Nations kicking off this weekend, we're joined by Hisham El Emrani, former Secretary General of the African Football Federation. And then later in the pod, we'll talk to The Athletic's Dan Sheldon, who's been speaking to the CEO of Southampton following their takeover by a London-based investment firm. The Africa Cup of Nations begins on Sunday. 24 nations will compete in Cameroon. The tournament was initially supposed to be played in January last year, but was delayed because of the coronavirus pandemic. We're joined now by Hisham El Amrani, who during his eight years as Secretary General of the African Football Federation, was in charge of the delivery of all major competitions and events on the continent, including the Africa Cup of Nations. He was also CEO of Morocco's bid to host the 2026 FIFA World Cup. Hisham, thank you very much for doing this. I think it's going to be a, a fascinating chat. As, as far as the Africa Cup of Nations that is about to begin is concerned, first of all, it was hugely important that it goes ahead. Yes, of course, it's hugely uh, important. Uh, in the history of the tournament, uh, it always took place uh, on time, to the exception, of course, of uh, uh, COVID this year, having restricted the uh, uh, the organization, but since '57, it is the flagship uh, event of of the continent, and and uh, Africans in general, not only football fans, are very much uh, attached to it as a cultural thing, not just a football tournament. So happy that uh, we will uh, look forward to exciting games ahead. What are the cultural things then around the tournament in particular are attached to? Well, when you look at the history of football in general and how it came in Africa, there is a special bond uh, between football and, and people and fans and countries in general. And uh, when football was booming on the continent, it was during the independence movements and independence of different countries. And a lot of different countries used football. When I say countries, not only governments, but also movements, independence movements, uh, a group of fans to reaffirm the national identity of a given country. Uh, take the example of Cameroon. Uh, Cameroon is uh, uh, a mixture of, uh, of different uh, components of the population and, and so on and so forth. And uh, with the French speaking regions, English speaking regions and, and others, and very often uh, football is the only tool that allows for a, a strong national identity to emerge and strong unity among the among among people in Cameroon. Same thing for, for other countries. Uh, generally speaking, there's a strong sense of uh, projecting uh, an international image of, of unity when, when we talk about football. So from that perspective, it's a, it's a very important uh, tournament uh, per se. One of our colleagues spoke to Samuel Eto'o yes. last week, and it was a fascinating interview. Eto you know, obviously had much to say about the importance of AFCON and the development of the, of the game in Africa. He, he had a very interesting line that he feels that Africa has more talent than, than Europe, which I, I guess is, a, I, I understand his logic, I and mean, it's a, it been a very hard thing to prove. But I think his big issue was Europe is performing better on a global stage because of Europe's Coaching, basically. He talks about education and commitment to education, continuing education, and this sort of sense that, that that in Africa you kind of maybe get to a level and then you sort of think you've made it and you stop. Do you, how do you how do you feel about that? Do you do you do you think he's onto something there? Or, or is it is it more obvious things that that perhaps seem to me to be the issue? You know, basic infrastructure, number of coaches. What what do you think the real issue is? Talent is obviously a factor, but talent is everywhere whether in Africa, in Asia, in Oceania, 
You just need to know how to nurture it, how to make sure you have the right infrastructure to play it, how to commercialize the game to make sure that it can benefit the different stakeholders and so on and so forth. So definitely uh, football in Africa has huge amount of talent. That's the case, I, I believe, as well in Asia and Europe and so on. But it's how you uh, develop and nurture that talent. How do you have proper national leagues and proper local clubs that can host different talent? And the issue we have in Africa is this one, is that it's hard to retain talent. Uh, when you cannot offer the same competitive conditions to players uh, to players to evolve in your club, but uh, that concerns only a small fraction of the talent existing in Africa. Not all of them are going abroad. A lot of them stay in Africa either because it's a competitive environment and not everybody can be taken by foreign clubs uh, and others uh, stay there and, and get developed within the, the, the different structures there. So obviously, the quality of coaching, the quality of education, the quality of uh, athletes' reconversion into professional life, all those factors play a role. Uh, and Africa needs to improve in that in general, uh, going through the different club licensing requirements, the coaching requirements, and most importantly, uh, the need to develop further the national leagues to have a strong product locally uh, that can allow players to feel good enough staying in their in their country or going to a neighboring country in Africa, which is already happening compared to the last few years. Today, when you look, for example, in whether in Nigeria, South Africa, North African leagues, there are a large number of uh, African players that play there in competitive uh, leagues, whether in Morocco, whether in Egypt, and, and so on and so forth. So that needs to be carried on and developed further. Football also reflects the level of development in general of a country and how much they have invested into uh, into sports and football in particular. When we talk about the nurturing of talent, is there a common theme that runs through African football? Because I, I'm conscious, Hisham, that if we were talking, we wouldn't lump the whole of Europe together when talking about nurturing talent. What, what they do in Bulgaria may be very different to what they do in Scotland, which may be very different to what they do in... Italy, for example. So is it right to talk about the continent as a whole when we're dealing with these themes? No, it's not right. And that has always been the issue of uh, Africa as a whole, always being called Africa. Well, we are Africa. That's a fact. There's nothing wrong in saying that. But Africa is an addition of 54 different countries, thousands and thousands of tribes and different customs and so on. Just like you rightly say, between Bulgaria and Malta and Ireland is a whole uh, big difference. Same goes with Djibouti and uh, Mozambique and, uh, and Algeria and so on and so forth. So there are different influences that can always that can also be drawn from historical uh, historical perspective. Uh, some countries in Africa follow the Anglo-Saxon system uh, because they have stronger links with England uh, and therefore they follow whatever coaching license or referee training that has been done in England uh, as compared to uh, West Africa. When you go to Benin and Côte d'Ivoire and Senegal, they are following the French system because of the colonial past and strong links with the first having the language but also because of the different ties, whether economic, sporting, and, and political with the, with the former colonial powers, you would say something also similar about uh, Namibia, for example, following the German model because of, of the German influence in the past. Uh, obviously, CAF's role has been also to establish a common denominator across the different African countries by having its own uh, systems in place, whether in terms of coaching, whether in terms of club licensing, whether in terms of referee training, using also the different FIFA standards that have been put in place to, to train the continent as a whole. Then it's up to each federation to take upon the different requirements based on their strategic planning. Some countries, even though they have a former French influence, uh, like to work with Belgium because they like the way Belgium develops their coaches which happens a lot in, in, in different countries. Some others will have a mixture of different things while taking into account their own environment. So the groundwork needs to be done by the Football Federation together with the different leagues and clubs and see what their environment entails and what is best for them to follow as a system. But the key is there needs to be a CAF system put in place that have a certain standards 
but it doesn't mean that you cannot use development that is already in place from uh, the French bloc or the English one or Belgium or Switzerland or, or some other countries that do have already know-how. Uh, for example, I know that um, uh, Italians have very good development of refereeing and sometimes some African countries like to do partnership with the Italian Federation to get their referees developed. Some of them even call referees to come and referee some of the games in their national league. That happens as well. Isham, I know, I, I mean, I completely understand the point you're making. Africa's a big old place, complicated place, and it's ridiculous that we try and lump you all in together. It must be very frustrating. I mean, it is, it, when you think about it, even for half a minute, it's it's illogical. However, it does it does happen, right? I mean, that's the way football's parceled up into large confederations. You've already mentioned that Ireland or Bulgaria don't necessarily have huge amounts in common. So that's that's just the way it is. And, and I'm, I'm just looking at the history of, of African teams at World Cups, which is often a, 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 the best benchmark we have, right? So 82, Algeria becomes the first African nation to win, to win two games at a World Cup. 86, Morocco makes the round of 16. Of course, 90 was a huge breakthrough. Cameroon storms all the way to the, quali- to the quarterfinals. Then there's a bit of a gap. I think lots of people got very excited about African football off the back of that Cameroon success. And the, the next, I think, for me, unless I'm missing one, the next great flowering of a World Cup, of course, is South Africa. You know, the first World Cup to be hosted on the continent and Ghana get to the quarterfinals. I'm just wondering, when's the next step? Why, why haven't we seen the next step? What, what do you think? Is it, is it one thing? Is it as complicated as the nature of the continent itself? Is it 18 different things? Uh, yeah, I would tend to say that it's 18 different things, but I would like also to say that even though obviously it is the most important benchmark to uh, to look at how national teams at the World Cup perform, uh, because it's the biggest tournament in the world and because this is how people like to uh, make shortcuts to evaluate the state of African football, but this is not how you evaluate African football. Some of the teams, especially recently not performing well on the world stage, is a matter as well of good governance or lack of it. I mean, when sometimes you do have teams that reach the World Cup and uh, do not go to train because their bonuses were not settled yet, it's unacceptable for me. So there's an element of that. There's the element of the competitiveness of world football in general that gets stronger and stronger. So there are no small teams usually going to to the World Cup. But I think that the, the benchmark of evaluating how well African football is does not go only on the performance of a team at the World Cup that plays three matches maximum is too unfair. You need to evaluate the national teams in general, men and women, youth categories, national league, performance of clubs within the Champions League and Confederation Cup, uh, and so on and so forth. This is what gives you the temperature of African football, including the African Nations Championship, which is this tournament that personally I find very appealing because that gives a competitive platform to players that usually do not have the opportunity to play in the A-team. Because remember, teams like Morocco, Côte d'Ivoire, Nigeria, maybe more than 90% or sometimes close to 100% of the players if uh, play in either Europe or uh, the Americas or, or Asia. And therefore, uh, their playing level does not reflect the development of the game within the African continent. But of course, Playing at the World Cup and performing well at the World Cup and reaching finally that bloody semifinal we're all waiting for. <laughs> yeah. And even beyond that is a dream for every African because we keep being bashed about that, that, oh, we didn't reach, so therefore we're not good. It's not a straightforward uh, sure. link to that. There's no rationale, even though obviously you need to perform at that level as well. Why is European football doing so well? You sit on the outside looking in. I know you you travel the world. I know you've you know you you see you see these things. I think European football, uh, without a doubt, is uh, the most developed and performing football around the world. And I don't think anybody can can challenge that. Uh, it's due to different things, not only historical perspective, but also the work that has been done on European football, the way clubs have been developed, the European competitions, club competitions have been developed, and the way the qualifiers are made. And most importantly, you have to remember, uh, like we say in French, le nerf de la guerre, which is the money flowing in. Look at how UEFA distributes money today, uh, today to their member associations. It's important sums of money that go into the game with strict requirements about their use, 
and how it's being uh, injected back into the grassroots, into club development, into uh, women's football development. So when you have a confederation that does a proper work as well, and some federations that lead the way with proper good governance and uh, performance evaluation and so on, it leads you to, to have more developed nations play football and consider football as that business on, in addition to being just a, a game and a social phenomenon, you have to package it as a product with strict requirements, with different things that some African countries did not do properly as of today. So at the end of the day, it's a leadership matter as well, is being together with all the stakeholders, is being properly linked to the government who provides certain kind of support in exchange of accountability, transparency, and so on and so forth. And again, going back to the nurturing of that talent, whereby you know where to get the right kids, how to make them grow, how to reverse those that might not have a career into the sports administration or coaching and so on and so forth. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a whole thing about how you measure also impact on, on football competition and events and what kind of real legacy you leave, not just the legacy that you present on PowerPoints, but the one that actually you can measure on the ground. It's, it's a multitude of, of, of factors, but for me, European football today is, is, is the, the most performing football, whether at club or national team level. And then you have Comnebol coming close in terms of national teams that perform well as well with such amount of talent that is there. So we're not, we're not saying that Africa is by far the best and there should be, and it's just an accident that we, we didn't win the World Cup. It's a reflection of the amount of work that has been going on over the last decades. If you're looking at those models that you talk about, I think it's really interesting for those of us with no great knowledge of domestic African leagues and countries and FAs and so on and so forth, where those best performing federations are. It's very hard for me to judge or evaluate federations because there are so many criteria. There's the structure of the federation, the administration, the financial means they have, the leadership, the governance, the ethical standards. And then you have the performances on the pitch, uh, then the development programs. There are so many criteria, but I'll, I'll, I'll give you some examples of, of federations. The federation where I come from, Morocco, without being too uh, chauvinistic or, or subjective about it, is indeed doing a proper work the last few years, especially with the, the, the current president that uh, came in a few years back and, and uh, put a plan into place based on the means uh, Morocco has and how to develop and how to make sure that the federation cannot judge itself just on the result of the A team, but there needs to be proper work. So creation of regional uh, development academies, a national training center, development of different age categories, empowerment of clubs, transformation of those clubs from non-profit association status to a private a limited uh, uh, entity or company so that they can become truly a business and, and have a different implications on that. Considering the National League as a product that needs to be marketed properly to the national environment and so on and so forth. So Morocco is doing a, a pretty good job from that perspective. Uh, when you look at Nigeria, they have won the last, from a women perspective, they have won the last seven out of 10, I think, women African Cup of Nation, uh, because women's football is so strongly developed and the passion that it has there to, uh, to, towards it. I'm not sure that the Federation has uh, a main responsibility towards that, but that's something that uh, we, we have seen uh, there. Club football in Egypt is amazing. Uh, Zamalek, Al-Ahli, Pyramids, other clubs around, because the league has always been strongly followed. And it's one of the few countries where a lot of the players from the national team decide not to go abroad, but to stay in Egypt because they have proper conditions and proper, not only financial conditions, but also playing conditions in terms of infrastructure, in terms of popular support, in terms of, I think, also being very close to their national culture. They prefer to be there than to end up in Stoke or in uh, Plovdiv or in uh, uh, Bruges uh, because it might be too cold for them or not. I mean, I'm, I'm joking, but, but uh, seriously speaking, that is a factor as well. From a marketing perspective, I like to look at the South African League that has done a pretty good job in the last few years, the PSL, and in terms of their marketing endeavors and how they are uh, packaging the things and how they are selling uh, merchandising and doing a lot of different work. So each country has such a different reality. But overall, I must say that there's still a huge amount of work to be done. 
at the national level on how to package. Looking at Nigeria, for example, the last 10 years, Nigerian clubs have done almost close to nothing when it comes to the Champions League and Confederations Cup. Whereas in the past, you would see the Enimbas and other clubs that would reach or win uh, continental competition. So there's an issue there on how the National League in a, the most populous, populous and biggest country in Africa can do much better than what they are doing currently. Uh, so, so, so there's still a, a lot of uh, opportunities uh, whereby you need to package and market and sell your National League in parallel to the competition because people will always say, yeah, but European football uh, makes it difficult for uh, local leagues to perform and so on and so forth. But I think you can do both. You can still follow European football while having an interesting local football package around your community in in in, in your own country. So here's the interesting thing then, and th- and this isn't this isn't trying to lump all of Africa together. But a common theme of of our podcast is how other sports or other countries can learn from each other in a whole variety of ways. Given the countries that you've mentioned there and their differing strengths, is there a willingness amongst the African countries in general to work together to use the expertise of, I don't know, Nigeria's women's teams compared with South Africa's marketing of, of, their, of their domestic leagues? Is there a willingness of countries to work together and use each other's expertise for the greater good of strengthening football on the continent? Or is there too much rivalry between each country? Look, the rivalry will always be there, and it's a good thing from a football perspective, but more and more cooperation is happening among African countries. So there is a willingness. It's not enough yet today at the level that uh, we would like it to be, because in the past as well, and even there's also sometimes in some countries a mindset whereby you know, just when you talk about coaching, no, let's get the guy from France or Belgium or Italy rather than the local guy that might perform much better than that guy. But there's a trust in something abroad that probably will have better value. There's a similar mindset that uh, keeps being applied sometimes within federations whereby, no, let's look at what the Europeans are doing. It's probably not worth looking uh, at, at our neighbor. But this is changing. Uh, This is changing because competence is increasing, competitiveness is improving, and therefore today you have a lot of uh, big teams uh, on the continent or federations that look to their neighbors and get experts from there. Uh, There are exchanges programs that are also facilitated by CAF. You have to to remember that CAF today organizes a lot of different platforms and seminars and workshops and forums whereby there's a uh, sharing of know-how and expertise across and among the African countries. So uh, that's why I said the willingness is there. Uh, the exchanges are increasing among uh, African countries, but it's still not at the level that we wish, just like from the economic perspective and trade. Uh, trade among African countries is not as strong as trade between African countries and, and foreign countries. A lot of countries, especially coming from the same region, share similar realities and therefore it makes sense to do to, to, to have those exchanges happening among those countries. So let's talk about CAF. I mean, you've used to work there. You were their general secretary for a long time. I know you left, but, but you know, you, you, you understand the organization. And here we are at their confederation championship, which is an ultimate test, isn't it, of competence in the same way that Euros were a test of UEFA's competence and et cetera. You know, any, any, any confederation would have this challenge right now. And what a challenge it is. You got COVID, Cameroon. There's a situation. There's a security situation in Cameroon. It's been twice postponed already, but it's going ahead. It was real determination to get this tournament on. So, what state is CAF in right now? Is it a competent organization that is ready to to to, to put on an amazing tournament and do the things that you want it to do? I won't judge personally the state of of CAF, but what I can say is from why I believe the tournament will be a success. And crossing fingers that COVID will not play any uh, uh, any negative impact on it, uh, even though it makes things more complicated, is that I can tell you, having seen myself and even having heard afterwards, the efforts of Cameroon to host this tournament has been so strong and intense since being awarded the competition, combined with a truly amazing passion by the people there and the fact that they are so thirsty 
I mean, since 72, I think they didn't have the, the, the football competition. So they are dying to have it. And how I noticed that in 2016, we organized the African Women's Cup of Nation. And I was shocked. And the, the term is shocked to see that without the national team playing, stadia were full house for women's football. It was truly amazing. And when Cameroon was playing, you had thousands of people queuing outside, not being able to enter because the stadium was full. The popularity of, of, of the game, not just for the A national team, but in general is such that I was uh, astonished by that. Uh, and that's why I, I look forward to those games. I know now just today, CAF uh, with the uh, authorities in Cameroon have decided to put a limit to the attendance with this between 60 to 80 percent of, of attendance with, within each venue. But I think they will do a good job and CAF will be able to put it out as well because they have been on the ground the last few months and they are working on the preparation. But another element you didn't mention is the fact that also it's 24 teams today, not 16. So that makes it even bigger and more complicated. I personally think that 16 would have been the right number to stick to. But then, of course, you would have the argument that you wouldn't give the opportunity to some other teams to go and play and have competitive football and improve. But at the same time, personally, from the host perspective, it's not easy to find a unique countries every two years to host 24 teams, uh, infrastructure-wise, financially speaking, and so on and so forth. But that's a, a different thing. So uh, as of today, I mean, uh, CAF is already not only in terms of final delivery of this tournament, but also looking at uh, Cote d'Ivoire, looking at Guinea. You know, uh, from my own experience being eight years at CAF, I can tell you that the, the rhythm is intense because the AFCONs are happening every two years. But when you don't have an AFCON, you have a Shan, which is also 16 nations tournament. So you have a big tournament every year. So there needs always to be proper management and preparation, planning about uh, the organization of such tournaments. But for Cameroon, I'm very confident because I know the work that has been ongoing in Cameroon from the Cameroon authorities, but also the, the support of CAF and the fact that they are so eager to demonstrate to the world, not only to themselves, but also to the world and to Africa, that they are able to put it off because they have been disrespected many times. And because people say, yeah, but it's in Cameroon. So it's automatically, like you mentioned Cameroon, so obviously it's automatically complicated. And I feel for them because they're being judged without even being judged on the actual outcome of the, of the competition. So let's talk on the 7th of February, the day after the final, and see whether they have managed to put it off. I'm convinced that they will because they have organized different tournaments in the past and the, the entire nation has been involved uh, in that. So from that perspective, I truly feel that we're going to have fantastic games. Venues are, are ready. Of course, there are always hiccups here and there when you organize a tournament. That's part of the, the game. But I, I think that they will do something uh, of very high standard uh, moving forward. Given the schedule that you just talked about, uh, a FIFA World Cup every two years will be an absolute pain, wouldn't it? This is the $1 million question, I would say, because people react to this question always almost emotionally. And if I react to it emotionally, I would be against it because I'm used to four years. Uh, and there's also the right argument that four years gives enough time in terms of prestige. You are world champion for four years. You give time to the host country to get organized. And also the calendar in general, not only in terms of Euros, Afghans, but also in terms of Olympics and the rest of the sporting calendar that makes sense. But at the same time, there is a feasibility study they have been talking about. Uh, and usually people are always very resistant to change, especially when you talk about a cultural event that is beyond sports. I mean, the World Cup is, is the reason why I work in football myself, because it's, it's sacred for me. So when you touch the golden egg, it's like, hey, be careful. It has to be really, really well thought. And what are the implications financially, calendar-wise, and so on and so forth? So it, it is a, the problem of, of this question today. It's a divisive question that uh, makes it complicated when you look at how UEFA now is at odds with FIFA and how they are even threatening of uh, almost kind of leaving the organization. So this is beyond just the World Cup. It's about the organization of world football that is at stake. So ultimately, if then the FIFA guys come with a report and explanation and there has been a genuine stakeholders engagement 
and that everybody has talked to each other and there's a way to find a common solution that makes it possible every two years, why not? But so far, the, the dialogue has not been serene and healthy. It has been just kind of uh, throwing press releases or reports, one thing the opposite of the other one. There needs to be a more calming uh, atmosphere around the whole debate of the World Cup every two years. Self-interest governs everything, doesn't it? You're absolutely correct. I experienced it myself. When the, the international calendar, for example, was never a confederation-wide engagement. It was Europe doing it with FIFA based on almost European standards, I'm sorry to say. And we were fuming when the calendar came out a few years back because it didn't take into account the realities of the African continent, whereby from Cairo to Libreville, you need to fly through Paris and spend 24 hours before reaching. But no, a double date should only have a certain number of days that allows uh, you to play a couple of games. But for African teams, it was not possible to the exception of a couple of them that have a chartered flight, but others have to go commercial route, and therefore it makes it impossible to to play. At that time, it was only uh, almost a UEFA slash FIFA international calendar that was tabled, and we were brought in to kind of stamp the calendar, but actually we didn't. We were against it. But at the end, a vote had to be made at the FIFA executive committee at the time. It was not called yet the council. And obviously, because Europe and other continent had the majority, Africa lost, and the international calendar was implemented. So that pushed CAF to ensure that every time you have a double date, you should only play one game unless you are playing the same teams in match day three and four that allows you to, for example, Morocco play Mali, Morocco goes to Mali, and then they both come back to Morocco to play the return game. Otherwise, you don't have literally enough time. uh, And today it's getting even worse. For example, you talk about AFCON. I don't understand how can you make or accept players release on the 3rd of Jan when the tournament yeah. starts on the 9th. It's, <laughs> it's criminal. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. Is that part of the disrespect? Well, look, a lot of people will talk about disrespect. There's a, a part of disrespect. But I think at the end of the day, it's up to the African officials to take the right decisions and, pre- and, and preserve their own interests. CAF accepted. So if CAF accepted, how can you uh, complain then afterwards? But for me, even looking at the World Cup in Qatar, players will be released maybe just one week before the start of the first game. One week, we're talking about the World Cup. Players will see each other and be in training camps and, you know, and perfect their own tactics and, and, and all uh, planning just one week. And here for AFCON, it's just about six days. And you add all the COVID cases and the complication that go with it. So it's, 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 a, it's a problem. So, of course, there's always self-interest. But ultimately, uh, you need to defend the, the interests of the continent and what you're, you're, you're doing. And there needs to be a genuine collective involvement of all the actors. But uh, when it comes to a disagreement, there needs to be a, a vote. And then what happens is that uh, based on the, uh, on, on the number of weight that each confederation has within a council, then even when you, with the, when you disagree with a certain proposal or, or, or aspect of it, you cannot win the vote because your numbers are, are not enough to gain the majority. I'm reminded of the first time that I met you and you gave a wonderful presentation in a really nice restaurant. I think it was outside Casablanca. It was part of, I might be wrong, was it either Casablanca or... Where did we go? Did we go to... Was it Marrakesh, um, I think? It could have been Marrakesh. Yeah. It could have been Marrakesh, yes. Yeah. Uh, it was one of those two. But anyway, it was a lovely meal, great presentation. And I thought it was a good bid. This We're talking about the world, the Morocco's bid for the 2026 World Cup. Now, unfortunately, you were up against a bit of a juggernaut, certainly in terms of commercial, um, what they had to offer. And that's the, that's the, the you know, the, 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 three-way, the three-way bid from Mexico, Canada and the USA. Um, I thought you gave, you know, you gave a good account of yourselves and you certainly um, put Morocco's best foot forward. And I think you put a, a good case for African football as well. And that, of course, Africa had had it in 2010, but this was a different end of Africa, a different culture, a different tradition. Look, by 2030, it would have been 20 years that South Africa happened. And if you maintain the principle of rotation, I think it's time again for Africa to host it. Uh, now, how is the question? 
against who you're competing is another question. Uh, how neutral is the FIFA leadership is another question. There are so many parameters to take into account. So, for example, you know, if if in 2030 or 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 34, for that matter, China goes uh, to bid, you know, it's going to be hard to win against China uh, because they do have a case. They never organized it, and so on and so forth, and and all the the right reasons. But I think uh, by making the World Cup a 48 team tournament. And by looking at the trend in world football, whereby now joint hosting is becoming almost like a, a norm, it might be needed that Africa needs to put an African bid whereby there's more than one country uh, bidding for it. And that might be very interesting to, to look at it, especially that people cannot say, oh, no, but traveling from place A to B might be too far. Hey, look at uh, the United bid. You might have a, a 10-hour flight to go from one venue to the other. Uh, I don't know how far is uh, Monterrey from Chicago or Los Angeles to uh, to other places, but definitely this is not a restricting factor. So there might be uh, a need to look at the opportunity to do it that way. But at the same time, I feel in general, and I'm talking here not only as a as a professional, but also as a football fan, the World Cup in general, even though there are more teams playing, which is a good thing, they need, we, we cannot keep asking for bigger stadiums, more and more and more. We need to keep the World Cup at a human level. Today, 99.9% of the people watching it are in front of their screens, whether on TV or through social platforms or different ways of watching the, the, the game. So you need today to, to, to just make sure that uh, uh, really there's a legacy aspect that is taking into account. And we've been talking about legacy very often, but the, the actual impact of it, when you look at it, is not always great. Look at um, Brazil in 2014, or even look at South Africa. Some of the venues in South Africa are not being properly used today, or some of them are costing millions of dollars of maintenance every year uh, because there was no proper post-World Cup thinking on how it can be used, not only by local clubs, by entertainers, by the communities, by schools, and so on and so forth. And today, even looking at Soccer City, it's hard to fill up the, that venue unless you have uh, U2 playing or, uh, I don't know, Brazil against Argentina friendly or South Africa playing the final of AFCON against another team. But otherwise, it's, it's extremely hard. So I'm questioning, do you really need 80,000 seaters uh, or maybe one per country maximum? to be considered the national venue, but those stadiums cost 20 to $25 million of maintenance on a yearly basis. So that's a lot of, of, uh, of money. Uh, looking at Brasilia venue in Brazil, they didn't even have a club in the top two or three divisions in Brazil, but they still put, I think, about 400 million euros on that venue. Uh, and it was fantastic to watch the games there, but what happens next? Uh, same thing happens also with Africa for the AFCON, looking at the one I was in charge of in Gabon in 2017. Some of the venues today there are just uh, abandoned, uh, like in OEM or, or some in Libreville. And it's a shame, ultimately, to just do that exercise for the image building and the public perception. And then ultimately, there's no plan to use such a venue. Then don't build it. Uh, and that's why also in our bid in 2026, if you remember, four or five venues that we plan to have at 40,000 seaters were planned to be reduced at 15 and 20,000 seaters because we didn't need more than that. And that was based also on a financial evaluation impact and so on and so forth. So we have to keep that uh, sustainability aspect. But so far, very often, it's nice words that are being thrown out, but not necessarily implemented on the ground. Is the future positive or is the future difficult? The future is difficult and positive, I would say. First of all, because I'm uh, an eternal optimistic person. And I think also that Africa, from the perspective of Africa, has such a, not only strong potential, but concrete talent, concrete and better leaders looking at federations today. There are uh, younger generations of leaders that come in, uh, younger generation of leaders that take over clubs around the continent, more interest from the private sector, uh, and also from the government playing a role of not interfering directly, but playing a supportive role. So I think that ultimately the ball is in our camp. 
while we can blame the outside interferences or impacts of whatever European football else can do, ultimately, if things go wrong, you can only blame ourselves. It's up to us to make, to make the difference, to show strong leadership and defense of uh, our own interests. But despite the difficulties that COVID has created and the competitive imbalances that you can see across the game, uh, the future is bright and should be harnessed with a positive uh, spirit. But at the end of the day, it comes to hard work, planning, management and good governance. Thank you very much for talking to us. Absolutely fascinating. And once the tournament is over, we should do that. We'll, we'll have a catch up at the end of the tournament. Lovely to talk to you. Likewise, the pleasure was mine. I'm looking forward to that catch up on the 7th or 8th of February. Then. Brilliant. Many thanks <laughs> you. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank you so Thank much. You. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is a paid advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Do you ever get that feeling that you need to get something off your chest? We all carry around different stresses, big and small. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to release and discuss those thoughts and feelings and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a licensed therapist. And if things don't click, you can switch to someone new at any time with no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to this podcast, you can get 10% off your first month of online therapy by heading to betterhelp.com slash athleticfootball. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash athleticfootball with no spaces. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. The Premier League side Southampton have announced that Sport Republic has bought Zhao Zhisheng's controlling stake in the club. Joining us with more is the Athletic Southampton writer, Dan Sheldon. Uh, very simple, first of all, then. Dan, who are the new owners? Southampton have been bought by uh, a, a company which was only incorporated um, on December the 9th, uh, Sport Republic. Um, their lead investor is a guy called Dragon Solak, a, a Serbian media tycoon. Is that, that word's been floating about a bit. And Sport Republic itself is co-owned by a, a guy called Henrik Kraft, who, who worked in private equity for a long time. And probably most notably, uh, Rasmus Ankerson, Brentford's former co-director of football up until the end of last month when his contract there ended. So they're the three guys who, who you know, are going to be the front and centre of, of Southampton. You talk about how um, short a time it is that they've been formed. Were, were they formed specifically to buy Southampton? But my understanding is that Southampton aren't the only club they would have been looking at. Um, Southampton were approached, and I believe that at the time they were approached, the investor then dragon then came on after that. So once Southampton were kind of sold on the idea and trusted the people and looked at it and thought, yep, yeah, that looks good. We like your idea. Dragon was then brought on board and he then invested and the takeover was done quite quickly from there. You've spoken to, to Southampton CEO and he is staying put. What did he tell you about the exact deal, how it's structured 
how safe the club are through this deal. He was quite plain about it and said, because I, you know, I pressed and said, well, how, how have they funded this takeover? And have they leveraged money against the club? And he was very keen to point out, no, they haven't. Have they had options in the past to sell the club via a leveraged buyout? Yes, they have. But in his words, he said it was too great a risk to do that for a club like Southampton. I think we saw with Burnley and ALK how they went from having, you know, a sizable lump of cash in the bank to then being in debt. And Southampton, rightly or wrongly, didn't want to go down that road. So that's probably the first thing to say on how it's structured. In terms of Martin's role, he will continue running it on a, on a day-to-day basis. Again, he was keen to point out that, look, you know, Sport Republic is Sport Republic and we're Southampton Football Club. These guys you know, we'll want to grow their business. And we, will, we of course, will be a tool for that. But day-to-day, our operations will not change. Yes, there may be some input from Rasmus, from Henrik, from Dragon, but they are not going to want to be involved in the kind of minute details that, you know, the board will hear on a kind of weekly basis. You know, if there's something big, they're going to want to be informed. If not, just crack on with the job you're doing. Um, Sport Republic is our baby, and you're now part of that. So in terms of that's how the deal was structured, in terms of a price of uh, Martin said that we're never going to make that public, but I think me and Matt have kind of spoken a lot about this and I've had to get my head around enterprise value and all these different kinds of things. Cause you saw yesterday, there was a, you know, people were saying a hundred million pound. Then you saw a report saying it was 250 million pound. And there's obviously quite, quite a big difference in that. And I think where that 250 comes from is the enterprise value. You know, I think the club are valued at around 235, 240 million enterprise value so if Matt I'm sure correct me if I'm wrong which is its cost to buy plus the day it has on the day it, it's going to be bought they've obviously lost money to the pandemic and it's become clear that Gao has also lost money on the initial investment he made in 2017 so he paid we think around 160 million pound I'm told that they they paid Sport Republic paid between 100 and 150 I imagine it's probably somewhere in the middle of that figure of what they've paid for Gauss shirts. <laughs> the, the teacher, the teacher is very happy with you, Dan. Uh, he's very happy. He'll give you an A for your for your business homework. Well done, but very well explained, Dan. I mean, <laughs> enterprise value. This is cropping up more and more, and I think it's really interesting as as sort of I guess football finance and, and our sort of understanding of these these clubs as businesses. And the fact that we have this whole wave of certainly American money coming in who kind of think about things differently, this comes up all the time. You know, what's the value of something? And it's, it, is, it is a bit counterintuitive. You know, if something's massively indebted, you sort of think, well, that's a negative, right? Why would you be adding that to the to the numbers, but taking it away? But it's a bit like buying a house, right? That's a really sort of simple way of thinking about it. Most of our houses are mortgaged. You don't discount the mortgage, do you? You know, you buy that you buy the bricks and mortar at the price, and you you then bring your mortgage with you, and that's what you're buying, right? The enterprise value of a house, the enterprise value of a club. That's probably the easiest way of thinking about it. But I think what's interesting about Southampton is half of the enterprise value is debt, um, which is quite quite a quite quite a large amount. And look, a lot of that we know about because we've we've done stories, haven't we, Dan, about about the big loan they've taken from MSD, which I think is going to be interesting going forward to these this new lot. Do they pay it off? I, I suspect they'll want to refinance that pretty quickly because I think they're paying best part of 10%, aren't they? Is that right, Southampton, on that MSD debt? Yeah, that's right, yeah. And how quickly do you think they could do that? My understanding of that of that loan is that they took it out around June 2020. Now, that's locked in for two years. So I think if they wanted to pay it back now, my understanding is that there would be some kind of penalty fee incurred because they're paying it early. Yeah. So, just like your just like your mortgage again, early exactly, redemption. Exactly. So conversations will be taking place. I think there's an acceptance that part of that will be paid off in June. And then I guess the conversations will be, well, what do we do with the rest of it? Do we want to spend, you know, the best part of 80 million pounds if we have that in cash to pay that off? Or should we pay, you know, 10 million, maybe re- refinance the rest of it on a lower rate from somewhere else and invest that in? Sport Republic, not necessarily Southampton, but Sport Republic. Can we buy another club with the cash we have or should we pay off the MSD loan? That's a conversation they're going to be having. And if it was you, Matt, who explained to me that you know rich people don't mind debt. And to this day, I still can't get my head around that. <laughs> but, you know, I'm sure I'm sure these are the conversations they're going to be having. Debt's cheap. All right. Just keep remembering that. Debt's Honestly, cheap Dan, every, every week's a lesson for me as well. Don't worry about it. <laughs> One of the things that really jumped out from your interview, fantastic interview with Martin Simmons that's published 
on the site today, which should be yesterday by the time these things come out. This idea, and this, this, I'm, I am tying it in with this debt. So obviously, you know, we've talked about the MSD debt. Some of it would just be COVID losses. Southampton was running at a loss like a lot of them do anyway. So there's a bit of debt there since the last time we've seen their accounts. But the other thing that the, the point that Simmons made is that they've kept investing in players. They haven't done what you would again sort of assume, right, we're for sale. What do we do? Stop spending money. Stop making the debt worse. That will make us more sellable, right? No, not necessarily. Keep doing what we're doing. Keep investing in youth because that's what we do. Buying good young players makes us more valuable and also improves our chances of staying in the Premier League. I think that's that's kind of it. it? That's the point I think he was trying to make to you. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, and you made the point to me yesterday, you can look at other clubs in the Premier League that perhaps stopped investing and now find themselves kind of in trouble. And look, Southampton aren't going to be finishing in the top half this season, I don't think. And they're not exactly out of danger in terms of relegation. You know, they're only a few, a few points away from falling back into that kind of mix of four or five clubs. But the point he was making was that by investing in the likes of Mohamed Salasu, Tino Livramento, by giving James Ward-Prowse a new contract and, you know, giving him a pay rise, we are remaining competitive while still being an attractive proposition for a club because we're not going to be in the, the 18th, 19th, 20th, 17th. We're going to be kind of 13th, 14th with good sellable assets. So that if you want to come in, there's a clear platform there to take us up and, you know, improve us, improve us that way. Rasmus Ankerson, what will his influence be? Bearing in mind, you know, we talked about him as, as, as director of football at Brentford. Is this purely from the investment side with him? Do we know? Or will he be more a hands-on in the, the expertise he's used in his former role at Brentford? Southampton Football Club operates under St. Mary's Holding Group Limited, right? And Martin explained this to me in the sense that that St. Mary's group has an ownership board. Now, Rasmus, Henrik and Dragon will all sit on that board. The football club underneath that umbrella has its own board. They are not going to be on that board. So the likes of Matt Crocker, director of football, you know, he's fine. Martin all can stay on that football operations board. That isn't going to change. However, of course, Rasmus will have a, a level of expertise from his time at Brentford. And when it comes to Southampton recruiting... I mean, people are making a lot of the data and they're going to go down the, the Brentford Moneyball approach. Southampton already use data anyway. Most clubs use data. It's not a new thing. It's like Brentford aren't the first club to use data. Yes, they've used it well. But I think it was Southampton that made the black box famous whenever that was a thing a few yeah, years ago. Yeah. So the way they recruit won't change. Of course, you'd imagine Rasmus will have an input or want to at least offer an opinion and say, well, we could be doing this. But Southampton are open to that. And I think... From my conversations I had yesterday, that was kind of one of the attractions between the, the two parties was that perhaps Sport Republic spoke to other places and there was a kind of, well, we want to use data and other, other, other clubs were like maybe hesitant, scared of it or whatever. But Southampton were like, no, we, we're open-minded to that. You know, we can learn from you and you can probably learn from us. So let, let's kind of put our minds together. And I think Martin used the word hybrid solution. Um, to kind of recruitment and data and everything like that. That's what they're going to be searching for. It all sounds easy in principle. I think it's really interesting the way, uh, Dan, you sort of phrased it at the beginning and that this is, you know, Dragon is the investor, right? Dragon Solak has had lots of press today because he's sort of an interesting guy, right? We're always interested in people we know very little about. You know, this sort of Serbian billionaire made his money in telecoms and uh, TV in the former Yugoslav republics. You know, we can sort of track his career a tiny bit. You know, this man is a private guy, likes a bit of golf, lives in Switzerland. But that's that's about it. What I see, though, when I when I look at Sport Republic, is this, this is a Danish plan. These, the, the two main guys here, Henrik Kraft, who has worked, who's certainly been on the same board as Dragon Soda. Those two guys met at this this sort of large media company called United Group, now based in Holland. They own TV companies and telecom companies all over Central and Eastern Europe. That's where those two guys met. He's a private equity guy. He's a money guy. Rasmus Atkinson, we know we've been talking about him. He's your football brain. Into, into, he's written a couple of books, you know, Mitchell and Brentford. So there's you've got private equity and a kind of you know, and, and a sort of football thinker with a rich guy that one of them knows. That's what this is. And it is going to be a multi-club model. And I think they're going to buy some non-football club businesses. We already know about this Danish app, which is sort of a grassrootsy app. You can sort of use a bit of social media and track your own performances. It's called Tonsa. That's their other big investment at the moment. 
they, they you know there's, there, there's uh, people sitting on that board and that board there's 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 a sort of relationships between that company and Sport Republic already. I know that football people are investing in Tonsa. I think Thomas Frank, the Brentford manager has, I think a couple other guys have. So that's quite interesting to me, this sort of use of data. But then again, we've already discussed that. Everyone's using data. Where are they going to buy their clubs? I think it's absolutely nailed on. They'll buy one in Denmark for a few reasons. One, because they're Danish. Two, because the Danish league is open to multi-club ownership. There's loads of people that have a Danish club already. The Danish league, I think, is the best league. I think it's the highest ranked in the coefficients in Scandinavia. Denmark is a good is a good nation at the moment of football. So there's there's an obvious one for me. I'd be looking at, you know, everyone's buying a Belgian club at the moment for some of the same reasons. It's easy to buy one. Uh, Danish Belgian talent's good. I'd be really intrigued, though, because these guys like to be clever and different, where they go next. Because those are the obvious places. I mean, Poland, there's a bit of buzz about Poland. Again, you know, kind of really easy to get into the Bundesliga that way with, you know, talent there. I don't know. I'd just be intrigued. Did, did Martin give you any any clues as to as to where they might, where this where this group might grow? Not so many, to be honest. I think um, in terms of, of what he did say, you know, he said Europe, you know, obviously Europe will be, will be key to that, but they're not limited to Europe. So, you know, you could see them entering the US market you know, in, in a few years down the line, I think they view the US as a really good place to kind of where players will develop. You know, they're, they're all fit athletes. They take it very seriously. And I think, of course, you've got the MLS franchises, which are super expensive. But below that, you've probably got a lot of clubs you can pick up relatively cheap. I think Germany is another interesting market they may look at to explore. But as you've said, this isn't just limited to, to football clubs. You know, I think they were quite clever and the club statement pointed to this being sport and not just football. So could there be other acquisitions where they could kind of transfer their, their, their data, their technology, their player pathway thing they want to kind of push forward in the future? Absolutely. But I don't think, as Martin said, I don't think that's stage one. I think stage one was get Southampton, get the, the kind of focal point, and then we build from there. But the places you've mentioned, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised Denmark would seem nailed on um, given their background and the US would be one that I would pay kind of close attention to over the coming years. Well, I guess, look, the thing that almost every fan wants to know whenever there's a takeover is, can we spend some money right now? And, it, and the timing's interesting, it's January. So what do you think? Look, they're not going to be going out to sign Kylian Mbappe uh, uh, at this window. I, my understanding is that, look, they, they, they've bought the club, there's, they've invested uh, capital expenditure, they've made a commitment to, to invest a capital expenditure for the next two years, but that doesn't mean Southampton are going to be changing too much in what they do. Their, their, their plans for January remain the same. Look, if, they, if there's a player that they think is kind of like another Tino Livramento, they would absolutely go and do that deal. And, you know, Sport Republic will not stand in the way of that deal. That is everything that they... Tino Livramento is everything they like about Southampton. The kind of young player, bring him in, develop him, play him. You sell him for 40, 50 million pounds in two years' time, go again. So look, no, I don't think Southampton are going to be changing the way they they recruit players. They're not going to be going to spend 30 to 40 million pounds. I don't think Sport Republic, you know, it was put to me that we're not going to be like Newcastle. We're not going to have the kind of finances that Newcastle have. So don't expect us to be going out to sign Mbappe, Pogba, whoever else that, you know, is leading football at the moment. We've been talking about this on the pod for a while. The unwinding of the Chinese football experiments, you know, that whole money going back, back east. How will the Gao regime be remembered? Will it be remembered at all? It's interesting, I think, with Gao, because you'll, you'll speak to some fans and, you know, they will say he wasn't ever a problem. He didn't ever take money out of the club. But at the same time, other fans will say, look, he never put a penny in after he bought the club. So what was the point? And I think the way I described him in an explainer piece I did on, on Tuesday was in a world of colour, he was a bit grey. And I think that's probably the best way to kind of sum up his time there. They were always in limbo when he was there and, you, you, in his defence, you could say, well, he kind of bought the club at the wrong time because when he bought the club, the Chinese government changed their policy on kind of overseas investment and what they wanted to do. So from that point on, he was a bit of a, a sitting duck, I think. Exactly. Well, there you go. Farewell and uh, onward and upward with your Danes. <laughs> no worries. Thank you, guys. That's it. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, right now, you can subscribe to The Athletic and get a 33% discount. Just go to theathletic.com slash football pod. 
And The Athletic are recording daily transfer shows, bringing you exclusive news and insight on any deals during the January window. And the only place you can hear these podcasts is on The Athletic app or by subscribing to The Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts and you can start your free trial today. I'm back on Monday for The Athletic Football Podcast. Bye for now. The Athletic.